We're looking at Psalm 16. God speaks the Bible to us. It works by His Spirit, through His Word. We want to understand Him as He speaks. We want to see Him shape our lives. So let's ask Him to do that. Let's pray. Father, please do help us to listen carefully to the Word you speak. Please do work in us. Please change our heads and hearts. Please help us to understand and respond to you as you speak to us through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Perhaps you've thought it too. Eternal life would be an absolute pain if all it was is long. To do anything for long enough, it gets boring. Extraordinary becomes ordinary. Uh, This life can feel long. Neil Young sang the line, it's better to burn out than fade away. In an interview about life as a rock, uh, rock and roll performer, he said, it's better to burn out really bright than to sort of decay off into infinity. Better to see stardom and the fast life that came with it, to run hard while it lasts, than to live cautiously and boringly. Better to burn out than fade away. Carpe diem gets a similar sort of thought. You know, seize the day. Enjoy life while you can. Make the most of these days. And don't worry about what's next. But what happens after? When the blazing brightness burns out. And slowly or suddenly fades. Sooner or later, almost everything Almost everything that gives life meaning or pleasure or purpose, almost all of it fades. Extraordinary becomes ordinary. I think whether fame, wealth, popularity, fine food, possessions, freedom, power, control, success, once it's as good as it gets, it fades. It's just a matter of time until it fades. It fades by going away. Or it fades by becoming white noise. Or by by being that past high point that means everything else is now worse. Another ordinary thing to make the rest feel even more ordinary. Eternal life would be an absolute pain if all it was is long. This psalm is about something better than unimaginably long life. But it includes long life, so let's start with the verse about resurrection, verse 10. I suspect this is one of the passages that Jesus had in mind when he talked about how he must die and after three days rise again. He expected to be raised. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes uh, verse 10 when he bears witness to Christ's resurrection on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 13, which we've got for the screen, Paul quotes just the second half of verse 10. I suspect he often quoted it as he argued and preached uh, about the gospel. I'll read this snippet that he said uh, in Pisidian Antioch. And as for the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead... No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's actually from Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says in another psalm, 
you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's the end of verse 10. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The apostles said, verse 10, is about Jesus' resurrection. So what was David saying when he spoke this psalm? What was he speaking to his generation? Was he just saying that God had kept him a little alive for a little bit longer in the past and was hoping God would keep keeping him alive for a little bit longer for a while yet? Was that all he hoped for? I've heard that idea. I've read that idea. As if safety from illness was as much as David could hope for, or safety from enemies when they came along. I think we can say more. There's no reason to say that David only looked to God to make his life a little longer. He had everything he needed to look to God for life beyond death. When Jesus was asked about resurrection, he quoted what God said about himself to Moses in the passage about the bush. Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Mark 12, 26, 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the the dead, but of the living. So every time you hear the God of dead person, you're actually not hearing the God, it's not talking about the God of dead person, you're talking about someone who now lives, who still lives. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The evidence for life beyond death has been there since God spoke to Isaac after Abraham died and described him as the God of Abraham. There's no reason to say that all David hoped for was to live a little longer. He had some understanding of life beyond death. In fact, there are a bunch of times in the Old Testament after David has died... Uh, when the Lord God is referred to as the God of David. I think it's reasonable to hear David speaking with confidence about his own life beyond death. You'll hear that as we read on. But we also need to hear and follow what the apostles said when they see the separation. See, with hindsight, uh, the second half of verse 10 is clearly not about David because he did die and decay. He saw corruption In the rest of the psalm, David mostly says, I, me, and my. But in the second half of verse 10, he says to God, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Who's the Holy One who won't die and decay? Well, David knew it wasn't him. He knew he would die and decay like his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the rest. He knew because God told him. Paul's words in Acts chapter 13 hint at what God had said to David in 2 Samuel 7. You can see them side by side in the slide. God said to, said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. You see that echoed in what Paul said. When you're dead and buried, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall, who shall come from your body. 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build my ho- a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promised David one of his descendants would rule forever. And David trusted God's promise. He speaks the second half of verse 10 about that descendant. The whole psalm is true in a richer and fuller way about the, that descendant. Uh, fuller than a fuller way than it's true of David. When David wrote this psalm, he wasn't just speaking about himself. 1,000 years before Jesus was born, David spoke about Jesus. Jesus, the Holy One of God, who God did raise to die no more. If we'd been in the right place at the right time, we would have seen the resurrected Jesus. If we'd been there a little early, we would have seen him die. And then seen him rise. Their witnesses tell us what happens. They saw him. And now he sits at God's right hand in heaven. The day will come when every eye will see him. In verse 10, we hear David looking to the living, true, and holy God for life beyond death. We hear him trusting God's promise and speaking about his descendant, the Christ, who died and is raised to die no more. The psalm isn't just verse 10. It's not just about resurrection. It's about something better than unimaginably long life. It's about something better than unimaginably long life. It helps us see what makes eternal life great. So let's go back to verse 1 and work through there. Verse 1, David is safe with God. God is his refuge, his shelter, his protection. He asks God to preserve him and to keep him safe. And the rest of the psalm, we just hear him soaking on how good it is to know God, the living, true, and holy God, is his shelter. He meditates on it, to use the Bible word. He soaks in the idea. He speaks to God and he speaks to us as he looks from different angles at the extraordinary goodness of knowing the living, true, and holy God is his shelter. He speaks how good it is to help us see and feel how good it is to be safe with God. We need his help. We need his help because if you don't think it's good, you'll go looking for something else. If you don't think it's best, you'll go looking for something better. We need his help because if you don't think it's good, well, you won't feel how good, sorry, we need his help because if you don't see it's good, you won't feel how good it is. So verses 2 to 11, really, it's David speaking his enjoyment of God. He speaks his enjoyment of God to God and to us. So verse 2, he says, the Lord God is his highest best good. <clears throat> verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my God, I have no good apart from you. He is convinced that nothing is better than the Lord. There are other good things. David knows that God made everything and that when he made it, he said it's all very good. He knows God cares for his creation. He knows that God gives good gifts. God gives life and health and our ability to do. God gives joy in relationships. He gives delight in beauty. He gives the rich variety of what we see and hear and taste and touch. 
He gives our capacity to enjoy and delight and savor and appreciate what he gives us. God gives good gifts. But he doesn't just give gifts. He gives himself. And nothing compares to God himself. Look at how David describes the relationship with the Lord Yahweh in verse 2. The Lord God is his Lord, his ruler, his master. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's fundamental to trusting God as God, to knowing God as shelter, to know him as Lord and ruler and master. And it's a good thing. Nothing's better. That's the assumption here that knowing God, knowing God as Lord, he says, I have no good beyond that. Nothing is better than that. Our heads and hearts can get turned around on this and easily turned around. It can get caught up in the idea that submitting to and obeying God are have-to things. When really they are get-to things. David's seen the choice between attempting uh, to make the critical and the incidental decisions of life to trying to work it out with his own limited knowledge and limited ability to work it out. Or trusting God who knows everything. God who wants what's best. And he knows that God is his best guide. He knows that God's commands are life-enriching, not joy-sucking. But the best good is neither the good created things that God gives... Or relationships that we enjoy. Or his good guidance for how we're to live and live with a grain of reality. The best good is God himself. It's as if there is no other good. Christian writer and counselor Larry Crabb had a period of life when he felt like he had no good left in life. No other good left. In a moment that shook him, he found himself praying to God and saying, I know you are all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. I know you are all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. And he realized he was saying his problem. It's not that God isn't enough. It's that he didn't know God well enough. David did or came close. Whatever else he enjoyed, whatever other goods he had, well, they can only truly be valued and enjoyed when they are seen to come from God, who is the giver of all goods and all joys. The person who has God and everything else Actually, in the end, they have no more than the person who has God and nothing else. David could say it. And God wants you and me to say it. To say it so that we don't get diverted onto other goods. Make other things more important in life. And so that we do enjoy the greatest good of knowing God, our Savior. You see one of those other goods in verse 3. David delights in God, but he also delights in the people of God. 
He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Uh, the saints are the holy ones. They're, they're, they're God's people in the land that God gave them. And David delights in his brothers and sisters who know the Lord. It's very weird for someone to love the Lord God and not love God's people. That's just worse than weird. It's wrong-headed and wrong-hearted. Now, I, I know that um, some people have been treated badly by people who claimed to be Christians. People have been treated badly by people who are Christians. There are wounds that need to heal and scars that will stay. But loving Jesus will always mean loving his people. Now, there's an all Christians everywhere aspect to that. The nameless ones of in other nations. But there's also a devotion and a commitment to the ones God places us with. Uh, sort of, these are my people, these are my family aspect to it. Uh, these are my people, these are my family aspect to us being church with each other. Under God, as we pray to him, as our father, th- there's a shift. There's a shift which happens from these are the people who I should love, So these are the people who I do love. Our hearts resonate with the hearts of those who love the same things we love. Those who love who we love. I think we see this, don't we, when our hearts melt. When we hear a fellow believer speaking about their love for the Lord Jesus. Their trust in our Father their confidence in him in the struggles of life. That stands in contrast with verse 4, where David says he won't join with people who serve false gods. And why would he? (laughs) Why would he deny the living, true, and holy God, who is his Lord, by giving some sort of allegiance to another God, a false god? And why would he stand with others and affirm them in their allegiance to some God who is not true? Now, the extent to which there's tolerance in our society of promoting and talking ideas, it's a blessing. It's a blessing insofar as it provides a context where we can respectfully disagree, where we can partner in discovering the truth. But if biblical Christianity is true, and yeah, I'm convinced it is, We can't stand with and affirm people in Hindu rituals or Muslim prayers or Roman Catholic mass or sucking the best out of life because this life is all there is. We can't stand with them. David says he won't join with them because it would be a double disaster. A disaster for him in leaving the safety of knowing and trusting the living true God. And it's asked for others in confirming them in their rejection of the living and true God. You you and I need to be very clear on this. Relationships are the soil in which the gospel grows. And I keep encouraging uh, you to be in real, deep, meaningful, significant friendships with people who don't yet know Jesus. I love my friends who don't yet know Jesus. 
We share hobbies or we have history or, or both. Uh, we, we know one another's stories. But I groan when I think about what we don't share. They're unforgiven. The thing they live for or the series of things they've been living for, well, they let them down. They will let them down. And God will judge. Verse 4 is a reminder for you and me of how harmful it would be to support our friends in their choice. We're not honoring God and we're not being friendly when they treat good things as God things and we affirm them in it. We support their choice. I know you'll think of different friends. You see people who prize career, family, health, wealth, pleasure, privilege, prestige, comfort, convenience, safety, security, something they prize above all other things, but actually that thing will let them down. It's neither kind nor friendly to confirm them in their choice. So David says he won't stand with them for his sake, for their sake. Those things aren't worth it, but God is, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 speak the contentment of knowing God is enough. Have a look at the verses. Those words, portion, lot, lines, inheritance. They're designed to get us thinking about when the, the, the land, the promised land, was divided among the tribes of Israel. David's beautiful inheritance, the lines around pleasant places, the land allotted to him. Well, it's the Lord himself. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. When the land was divided among all the tribes and they were all given their part, the Levites, the priestly tribe, received no real estate, no land. But they didn't miss out. In Numbers chapter 18, the Lord explains to Aaron as one of the Levites, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any proportion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The, pre, the, priests, the priestly tribe had the owner of the land as their inheritance, which is far better. And David here, as the ruler of the promised land, says his supreme blessing is possessing the one who owns the land. That's his delight. He finds joy in knowing the Lord God is his God. The person who has God and everything else has no more than the person who has God and nothing else. Whatever else is true, if you know God as Lord and Savior, you need nothing else. You know, God, as Lord and Savior, you're in his hands and you need nothing else. Part of his care is his direction, his commands, verse 7. And bless the Lord, he gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. God is David's best guide. The Spirit of God instructs him by day and night. And the second line there, it relies on the first... The Lord gives him counsel as he hears the scriptures. The Spirit brings the truth 
out of his scripture soaked heart uh, as he lies down at night. Verse 7 is about the goodness of knowing God as his best guide and being guided by God who speaks the Bible. Verse 8, he's confident in the Lord's protection. He may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but he won't walk alone. The Lord doesn't promise to keep us from difficulty, but he does promise to walk with us through it. To walk with us through even death, verse 9. The word therefore, it's because the Lord is at his right hand that he will not be shaken, even in death. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. David's confidence in God stretches here through life and beyond death. Sheol the grave will not be the end of him. And beyond death is better, verse 11. He says to his God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, David's David's hope really isn't just for a little bit more life, to live just a little longer. He expects life beyond death. He trusts God to give it. We get to hear these, these words this side of Jesus' resurrection. We see them this side uh, as Jesus sits flesh, blood, and bones at the right hand of God in heaven, enjoying pleasures forevermore. As those who trust him, we will be raised as he was raised. Go where he has gone. Now, our, our bodies are frail and weak and will fade towards death. But when Jesus returns, we will be changed. The perishable will be raised imperishable. The corruptible will be raised incorruptible. The mortal will be raised immortal. God's promise to all who trust his son is life stretching out without ends. But not just life, life to the full. Life which doesn't fade. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Not, not kind of brilliant high point and then fading off into infinity. But inexhaustible and infinite goodness of being with God. When we see God face to face, we will see that he is enough. Meanwhile, we need reminders. C.S. Lewis was writing about this sort of expectation uh, as it surfaces in the Gospels when he suggested that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. David saw the day. He saw the day when God's resurrected people will see and feel the goodness of knowing God. See and feel it fully. He anticipated the infinite joy of being with God and seeing him face to face. He anticipated it and he tasted it while he waited. 
What could possibly be better than unimaginably long life? Well, unimaginably long life with God. Seeing his perfection, knowing his mercy, experiencing his love, getting to please him. All without bottom, without edges. When Jesus brings us home, we'll see and feel the goodness of knowing God. We'll see God face to face and know that he is enough. But we don't have to wait. We shouldn't wait. We should seize these days. We're too easily pleased, distracted by good things which will fade. Extraordinary things which will become ordinary. But Psalm 16, it stands as a reminder. It's better to seize these days and pursue a deeper knowledge and experience of God who speaks the Bible to us. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God who accepts us though we deserve to be condemned. God who forgives us at the incredible cost of the death of his son. God who is pleased by and enjoys our stumbling service of him. God who loves us and will bring us home. See, when we seize the day, when we give ourselves to knowing and enjoying God, there's no end to the exploration of his infinite goodness. There's no bottom to the depth of pleasure in knowing he is our God. Yes, we are far too easily pleased. Don't be so easily pleased. Seize these days. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God who raised your Son from the dead, that he did not see corruption, that he now sits at your right hand, that he has the great pleasure as your Son of being with you in the joy of the Spirit, as the one who has brought salvation. Father, thank you that through his death and resurrection, you have opened the way for us to share in your joy. Father, help us to see the goodness of eternal life beyond death and to see how we can seize these days to experience more of it now, to experience more now of seeing you as our God who richly provides for us. to share the joy with one another of knowing we are accepted before you through what Jesus has done for us. Not just accepted, but loved. Not just loved, but by your Spirit, able to live to please you, our Creator and our Savior. Father, please do continue to give us clearer vision of you and of your Son, and of your Spirit's good work in us. We ask it through Jesus. Amen.